Well, thanks for tuning in to the Essential Craftsman Podcast. I'm Nate. Our guest today is Adam Booth. Adam is the host of ABOMB79, which is a really beloved YouTube channel all about machining. It's been around for a long time. He's made a lot of videos. He's gotten well over 100 million views. And to me, it, it kind of really represents the essence of YouTube. It's, it's very niche content, extremely high quality in terms of the valuable information that he's putting up on the internet for everybody to see and learn from. So we're big fans. We, we met Adam a couple years ago in Texas, and he is a, just a really genuine and sincere and just, just the, the best. And I, we're lucky to have my dad in this interview with us as well. So I hope you enjoy it. Without any further ado, Adam Booth. Thanks for taking the time to join us. You you are one of the original YouTube Workbench channels, probably the most beloved machinist on the internet, and I'm really excited to kind of get into this. We have met a few years ago, so thank you for taking the time and how are you doing? Yeah, absolutely. Uh thanks for inviting me on. You know, I wanted to make sure that you guys uh, know that I was uh, very appreciative of contacting me and asking me to be on the podcast because uh I enjoy talking with you guys anyway, just like you're, you know, great friends. So yeah, that's how I feel. It was great. I, you know, we got to connect twice down in Texas and it yeah. didn't line up this fall, but, but I, I enjoyed it both times a lot and we're still hoping for you to make it out to the West coast. Oh yeah. So we, we definitely want to make it out there. Cool. Um, let's start with just machining because it's going to come up a lot and I don't want to leave any of our listeners behind right off the bat. And so if somebody would have asked me five years ago to explain machining, I don't think I could have done it. Could you explain what machining is, how it works, the basic tools? Both of you can take a swing at it for for someone who, for one reason or another, kind of missed that you know part of growing up. Mm-hmm. You well, go, Adam. You know this, man. <laughs> Let me see mm-hmm. if I can give you the, the best explanation. There's of course, there's different aspects of machining. So you have, uh, you know, different categories of, uh, you know, different types of uh, machine shops. You have uh, production machine shops, which is what most people are familiar with now, you know, CNC work. And then you have machine shops that are like mine, which are manual machining, industrial repair. So you're doing a lot of one-offs and, and a lot of repair on uh, parts for industry and uh, different mechanical things, you know, things that break and wear out that need to have some type of machining or repair or maybe even welding and repair done. So that's where I come into play. I've always been a manual machinist, you know, growing up with uh, dad in, in our shop, learning the uh, manual machinist trade and, and learning how to uh, not only build things, but repair things as well. So dive a little deeper. Um, it, it's easy it's easy for people like us to assume people know the difference between manual machining and CNC machining. Speak to that and the massive change that's happened in your industry in the last 20 years. Right. So CNC machining is uh, more, more in line of what the world sees today with uh, mass production. So if you have parts where you want to make hundreds or thousands or millions of, you know, the same repetitive parts, that's where uh, CNC machines come into play. Those are uh, computer numerically controlled machines. Okay, there you go. 
And manual machines are just that. They're manually operated. So you have hand wheels and cranks and levers and all kinds of things on these machines. And you're you're the one that's actually running the machine. You know, so uh, most people know me from running the uh, the manual lays and the manual mill. So you have hand cranks and, and hand wheels that you're turning, you're, you're uh, you know, moving the dials. Whereas uh, a CNC machine, it's all programmed into the computer and uh, you're relying on the machine itself to, you know, make the, the cuts for you. So, so that's something that I didn't realize before, you know, 15 years ago, I stepped into metalwork more seriously is that when the machinist is there running those dials and those levers, he's doing the math in his head while you're spinning that dial, you're counting the thousands and tens of thousands. And, and so in the act of working your hands to work the machine, your brain is keeping up and dictating every move down to the teeniest fractions of an inch and adding and subtracting and keeping track of the hysteresis in the machine. And it's, it's amazing. Yeah, you're exactly right there. And uh, sometimes I'm so used to it now, I don't actually think about it in that in that sense. But you're you're right, because, you know, like if you're running a manual lathe then you want to make another cut, you know, you're looking down at the dial and you know how many thousandths of an inch that you want to uh, increase the uh, cross slide for a feed. You have to look down there and then count it as you dial it. Mm-hmm. Whereas a computer machine, you're not doing that. You know, it's uh, mm-hmm. it's all programmed in there to do that, but you're not manually having to do it. And so, you have to know how much of a cut your tool is going to take and how the grind on the end of the tool is going to respond to the depth of the cut and whether the chips are going to be broken by the grind. And there's just so much going on, it blows me away. Yeah, there's, there's a so lot to it, just like you making- said. Making so being a machinist, I'm gonna just make I'm gonna sum this up. You're you're making metal steel parts with different machines to create the parts and pieces that keep trucks, equipment, machines, other uh, industrial items running. Is that yeah? Yeah. That primarily the product is is parts and pieces of other machines. I've always wondered: does being a machinist refer to that you operate a machine or that you're making or repairing machines which machines are we talking about you know what i mean yeah well and i think depending on where you're at in the world you know it's considered different things but i know here in the usa you know we're considered a machinist whenever you run machine tools that's what these machines are considered as a machine tool whether it be a lathe a mill a drill press um my shaper that i run any kind of big machine that's used to uh cut in shape metals is considered a machine tool. And so if you operate those, you're considered a machinist. Regardless of whether you're making a, a tool for a machine or maybe you're making a, I don't know, like a pocket knife or something. Right. You know, and, and you have different categories of machinists there as well, just like we talked about CNC. So a lot of the people that run CNCs today, which there's a lot of those, they're considered CNC machinists. Uh, you have CNC operators, CNC programmers, and then um, going back to like what it what kind of work that I do, you even have tool and die guys there. So they they get into even more precision and precise work than what I have shown that I do. So so let's back up just a little bit for the people that are listening to this and talk about the difference or essentially the three ways to create metal parts, casting, forging and machining. And so what Adam has specialized in and mastered right from his dad's knee is carving away the parts of the metal that you don't want to be there in order to uncover the tool, the part that's lurking inside of that chunk, 
right? That's and I mean, right. you can add you can add on to get you know things that needed to be added on with some welding processes, but it's essentially ultra precise carving, right? And that's what yeah. all those machine duels do. Machines do it's ultra precise carving of metals of different characteristics. Yeah. And casting is where you make molds and heat the metal up to a liquid state and pour it into the mold, and it gets hard, and you pull out. Um, the piece that's at least roughly shaped. It's off, it often goes from there to a machinist to smooth up. And forging, what blacksmiths do, is take metal when it is nearly melting, and that is it's soft, and just squish it into the new shapes that often approximate the shapes the machinists want. And then they take those rough forgings, drop them into their machines, and carve them down to the precise um, dimensions that, that is specified. And so those, as I understand it, those are the three broad general categories of working metal. And then welding, of course, is sort of a cut and paste sort of a thing. But machinist is a man who makes things really fit. Right. Yeah. And, Can you talk it, about your, as chime in, but then explain your family history in, in uh, machining, because it sounds like you've got, you've got a, a, a family legacy here that had brought you to where you are now. Is that right? Yeah. I got to uh, thank my, both my granddad and my dad for getting me into, you know, machining and doing what it is that I do now. Uh, my granddad, he, uh, he had a long-term career being a machinist. He, uh, he worked at one shop here in town for many years, and then he got a job working out at the uh, NAS Pensacola here at the uh, machine shop. It was called NARF, which is uh, Naval Air Rework Facility, mm -hmm. and uh, that's where he retired from. They did a lot of work for the uh, USS Lexington um, and, you know, other other things there in the, in the Navy. But, uh, so he worked there for many years. And then my dad, whenever he was 18, which would have been, uh, around 1968, he got a job working at a machine shop, the, the same one that my granddad had worked at. He got a job, uh, there and started learning how to be a machinist there as well. And then in 1972, my granddad decided to build them a machine shop in my granddad's backyard, you know, a small shop, small business, and uh, just put my dad out to work there, which is what they did. And they made it successful and started off as a, you know, a very small shop and just kept building it. And uh, I don't remember exactly what year it was, but I want to say it was probably between five and 10 years after the start. My dad actually bought it uh, from my granddad or my granddad sold it to my dad. And, uh, you know, then he just kind of took it over hundred percent and that was his business. And, um, so fast forward a little bit to 1997, that was the year that I was graduating high school and unsure of what I wanted to do, whether I wanted to go to like college somewhere or pursue some type of career. I wasn't sure. My dad talked me into coming and work for him that year that I graduated because he, he was real busy at the time and he needed more help. And it's always been tough to find good machinist or good help. So he uh, he he talked me into coming to work for him, and that's what I did. Started started working for him in '97, and I just kind of fell in love with the trade. You know, even though I grew up around the shop helping him a lot, uh, when I was a kid, I didn't really pay a lot of attention to you know, everything that what a machine shop is. I just have a lot of these memories of playing with the machines and playing with scrap metal outside and. Uh, helping them go to the scrapyard. But once I actually started working there full time, and you know, um, he taught me how to be a machinist. And I started realizing what it was, what a machine shop does. And I 
uh, I just kept enjoying it more and more. And then I started getting into the tools and, you know, learning what all these old machines are. I just started, uh, you know, picking up all that and it's uh, stuck with me ever since. Let, let, let me ask you this. What was your, in terms of machines, I mean, lathes, mills, shapers, drill press, what was, what'd you fall in love with first? Which, which machine really reached out and captivated your imagination? I think it's always been the lathe, the manual really? lathe. Yeah. And I've got a lot of memories of running our big Monarch lathe at, at my dad's shop. And, uh, you know, it's funny because, you know, when I started working as a machinist, learning how to be a machinist when I was 17, he put me right on that big Monarch. You know, it would swing 30 inches and it had a 12 wow. foot bed. So we That's had big great, one. great big work pieces in that thing. And he's teaching me how to be a machinist with a 30 inch swing Monarch lathe. <laughs> Gee whiz. Gee whiz. If only I could have had a camera back in those days to capture all those <laughs> big jobs that we had in that machine. I'll bet. Uh, that's always been my favorite, though, is the lathe. That's neat. Cy has a monarch. That's well, your. What's the. What's the. Um, these old machines, like everybody I know, which is like three people who are into this, only talk about the old machines. Is there like a. <laughs> Is there like some kind of newer machine that's still manual that, or is it just one or the other? You're either on the old machines, like what this Monarch or new computerized. Is there any middle ground or what's the, how, how does it work today? Are you, are you using these old, you know, manual machines for your work still? I still have a lot of old machines in my shop. A lot of my, uh, a lot of my machines are still very old. I don't have very many modern machines. I think the welding equipment is probably the most modern that I have, mm -hmm. but my Monarch blade that I have, see my dad had two Monarch blades. One was the big, the big one. I always just call it the big one. It was a 30 inch swing. And then the one that I currently have in the shop is a 16 inch Monarch. So that was one of the lays that uh, dad gave to me. So that one was built in 1942, I believe it was. Mm -hmm. God, that's uh, awesome. So a lot of the the old, you know, back, we we say back in the day, the, the old school American made machines, they were all heavily casted machines. They were big, heavy duty. They were engineered to last a lifetime and, and run for, for decades, you know, and here we are still running some of these old machines that were built back in the thirties and the forties and the fifties, and they're still doing the job today that they were designed to do back then. That's um, amazing. There's very few machine tools that are American made now. Most everything is sourced offshore. And uh, I've ran quite a few of the newer lays, which is I, I, my Victor lay that is made in Taiwan. That I, it is a, it's a really good high quality lathe. And I've run some other ones that were made in China. And I think that those are um, not as good as the American made machines. Mm -hmm. Usually the build quality is lacking it's lacking uh weight you know it's not as heavy as the old ones hmm. uh, and, and that's kind of important isn't it i mean vibration's a problem when you're doing precise work yeah exactly um one of the differences that i that i've seen just because of my experience is some of the lathes that you can buy today there's different levels of quality that you can buy in a lathe okay if you get one that's got a solid cast bed it's usually a, a much more rigid machine than if you get one that's just uh, it's just got sheet metal in between both the headstock and the tailstock. So if you can get one that's got more cast iron and more weight to it, it's usually a, a, a more dense and solid machine. Mm -hmm. 
And that's how all the old American machines were. I mean, they're just so heavy, heavily casted and heavily engineered. Those guys, it's like they over-engineered them. You can really take a lot of heavy cuts on the the older heavy machines versus the new style machines that they build today. You know, it's interesting, but I, I mentioned Cy, who's my blacksmith mentor. He's become just such a good friend. You know, he's he's old enough to be my dad, but in a lot of ways, he seems like a brother, right? Yeah. And he's got a good size monarch in his shop, made in 1951, I think, something okay. like that. And, you know, he can turn a cannon and he, he can get good size work in there. I can't tell you exactly how big it is, but it's it's big. And he had a young man in there, an, an aspiring, a, a, a real blacksmith, but the young man was in there. Cy was helping him turn some dies, right? And and the young man wanted to run it. And so he ran this monarch, monarch and he ran the tool holder itself into the four-jaw chuck, like oh, no. at speed, right? And everything just came to immediate stop. Oh, wow. Okay. And, and Cy was, and of course, of course, Cy, you know, just was appalled at what had maybe had just happened to his baby yeah but they got up there and they had to tap they had to get a hammer and a, a bronze dead blow on there and kind of jar that four jaw backwards off of the bind and and he that's what he said is if it wouldn't have been an old american-made lathe that would have torn the gears out of it it would be a piece of junk right now and yeah. he put it back to its paces oh, and wow. within the within the tolerance that Cy needs to work for at that thing is stilled right where it ought to be just because of yeah. what you were just describing yeah that's uh that's amazing to uh, yeah. to hear, and I, I've I've actually ran a lathe that was a crash, like what you're saying. I wasn't a, mm -hmm. I wasn't around when it happened, but I know that they ran the carriage or the tool post up into the chuck, mm -hmm. and it actually broke one of the uh, teeth off the gears in the headstock. Oh, and yeah. uh, it's such a job to have to take every single thing out of that headstock to replace one gear that uh, they just never did it. So every time you'd run the lathe, you'd you just hear like a little knock. knock Every knock, rotation, knock, knock. you hear a knock. <laughs> <laughs> it's good for making like camshafts where you need a little lobe. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> Is there one type of, well, I want to talk about YouTube in a bit because I know that occupies some amount of the type of work you do, but is there one type of machining that you really feel like you are an expert at maybe, or, or do you have to be so well-rounded and make whatever the customer brings you or, or do you have like some area of expertise in machining that you feel, you know, you can uh, stand on? Well, I, I feel pretty confident in my, my lathe and my mill skills, you know, and I, I, I've never considered myself uh, an expert. And, uh, and that's one thing that I've always tried to uh, portray in my videos is that, um, I'm just here to show you what I know. And, uh, I only know what I know and I don't know what I don't know, but <laughs> amen, uh, brother. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, I, I've always felt pretty confident in running the lathe and the mill both. So, so Adam, that's why, that's why I felt so comfortable visiting with you in Texas is that you weren't putting on any airs. You weren't trying to pull the wool over anybody's eyes, but yeah. when any, I, I was paying attention from the edges and whenever anybody asked you a question, you had the answer. And so it, I think it's a very compelling personality characteristic, what you just said. I know what I know, and I don't know what I don't know, yeah. and I wish I knew more, and I will by the time I die. You know, I mean, that's a that's a yeah. healthy way to live, right? Yeah, yeah. I, I uh, As I said, I, I always just try to show what I know when I'm showing these projects and these repairs. And and quite honestly, I've, I've actually picked up on a lot of tips and tricks just from the community out there. Yeah. By uh, not only reading comments, you know, but but emails and then watching other yeah. guys on their YouTube videos, you know, because there's I've only been subjected to so much of this 
um, some of this work and I haven't seen it all. There's a lot of other stuff out there and there's a lot of great machinists out there that nobody knows about, you know, but yeah. I'm just one guy that decided to film what it is I do and show that on YouTube. Yeah. I, w when I, uh, was prepping for this, I looked and did you know you've had over 128 million views on your videos? I think you're almost up to a thousand videos total. And, um, I and feel kind of embarrassed because I haven't that's looked a lot. at stats in a while. <laughs> yeah, that's a, it's a, it's an enormous uh, number. So you're being kind of modest. You don't know everything. And that's, of course, true. But, man, um, you're definitely doing something in, in these videos. So what, what do yeah. you attribute that to? Or what is it that you think makes um, is making your videos, like, really work for people? And I don't know, I guess, to what, what, to what do you attribute that? I know you've been doing it for a long time. So maybe there's just the fact that you've been working hard at it. But how do you think about that? Well, I've, I've definitely always tried to, uh, you know, improve my quality a little bit over the years from, I started in 2013, putting the, uh, the videos out on YouTube, but I really just kind of go off the comments and the hearsay and what, you know, I've had probably hundreds of conversations with, uh, viewers, you know, just like uh, go to Landfest is a great example. You know, a lot of mm -hmm. people come and they, and they talk to you. And they tell you in person what it is that they like about your videos. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people have sort of the same thing to say. They, they, they like the way that I deliver the material. They like the way that I talk about it. And just the way that I present the material in, a, in an educational form mm -hmm. seems to be a, a pretty big hit. And mm -hmm. for I, I guess a lot of people just like my voice because I've had people, I've had a lot of people say that they like listening to my voice. You got a great voice. Uh, <laughs> you do, man. Yeah. No, uh, you know, you really, you, you really do. Your voice is the same scale that you are. I mean, you're a big guy. When I walk up to you and, and I, I'm, I'm not a shrimp, but I walk up to talk to you and I think, huh, this is a full size guy. I mean, the crane is optional <laughs> in his shop. Okay. And your voice matches that. And so that's part of, I think of what's coming through the screen. I just try to have a nice, solid, and easy to understand delivery of what it is mm -hmm. I do, and I and I try to share each and every part of the repair. You know, so if I have a part that I'm going to be repairing in the shop, I try to explain it each step of the way so that the the people that are watching understand what it is I'm doing. Because there's a there's a there's a lot of videos where people are just just showing it for uh, entertainment. You know, they just mm -hmm. to see something being made and that's fine. Uh, I always had this urge that whenever I started recording something that I needed to explain it, what it, what it is I'm doing. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think I have, I guess I have just the right combination of all those things that uh, bring people in and they continue to watch the videos and they, and they enjoy them because of that. Yeah. I've it, been it, really surprised or, or just impressed. The machinist community on YouTube seems especially, Especially, I don't know, just neat. Both the other the other creators, and there's a lot of, and they're all great. But the audience also, like you said, it's a bunch of really smart people watching it, and mm -hmm. it has seemed to me different than some of the other even workbench channels where there's people watching for other reasons. But it really felt like in the machining videos that it's an especially kind of unique collection of people. Does it seem like that to you? I've always felt that way. And, and a lot of the other contributors and uh, viewers have felt that way too, that the, um, you know, the community around the machinist videos and the machinist contributors 
seem to be a little bit more uh, tightly knit group of folks and uh, not as much uh, negativity as you yeah. would find maybe, let's just say the automotive you know world. Yeah. That's a lot bigger than machining. Uh, yeah. There's a lot of critics out there and you'll get a lot of negativity in videos. But uh, yeah, that's, there's always been a great community out there. Uh, people that want to be involved, people that want to watch all the videos. Not, I'm not talking about just mine, but all the other creators. They like watching all of them and uh, chiming in and leaving a comment if, uh, if mm -hmm. there's something that they think that they can say that uh, help contribute to the project, they will do that. You know, they like they feel they like feeling like they're involved in the projects and the work that's going on. So, so uh, my I, I don't know if you've seen our on our spec house series, the plumbing um, episodes feature Phil, the plumber, Phil Rokas, good friend. I, I have not seen that. Just, just okay. So you know. well, well, let me just tell you this. He has seen you because he spent a long time machining because he's, he, he is like most machinists like yourself. He's got a big brain, you know, he can think. And so, and so I've talked to Phil. I said, so tell me about this A-bomb guy. Oh yeah, he's the real deal. And Phil is a real deal. He's done big work. He's done small work. He's machined. I mean, he's made, you know, like like machinists do. He makes amazing things. And he just happens to have slid into plumbing as a career and a niche. But I can just tell you that if the rest of the machi <laughs> machinist world are like you and Phil and Cy and his friends that I've met that are machinists, it it is a remarkably positive and frankly sort of a high, relatively high IQ bunch. And that can't help but be a good community. Yeah, it's a it's a great community to be a part of. And I, I, that's one reason why I love the privilege of being able to uh, collaborate with other folks out there, you know, uh, not just machinists, you know, lots of other people out there. But whenever I can, uh, you know, sort of connect with someone else out there that's doing the same type of work, machining, mm -hmm but maybe a different aspect of it. Mm -hmm. It's great being able to collaborate with people and come together and everybody kind of uses their skill set to uh, help each other out. Um, I'm going to ask you kind of a multi-part question. First of all, can you kind of talk about and explain the whole thousandths of an inch mindset and concept in a way that makes sense for a non-machinist? And number two, machinists are so precise. I mean, you have to be. And I'm wondering if that translates to other parts of your life being that meticulous or if it's just kind of when you're in the shop? I'm sure if Abby was in here, she would tell you absolutely. Yes. <laughs> uh, I, uh, I try to, I try to make sure everything is nice and straight, parallel square. Uh, I, I got this term from uh, my friend, Tom Lipton years ago. He said, square to the world, just, you know, mm. square to the world. So every time, if I'm trying to park a trailer, it's got to be square. You know, it can't be at an angle crooked. You know what I mean? If I'm, mm -hmm. uh, if I'm lining up something outside a piece of furniture mm -hmm. or whatever, you know, I'm always, I want to try to make things exact as I can. And, uh, so I think that kind of carries over because, cause Abby's always joking with me about that, about, <laughs> I know, I know you got to make it square to the world. <laughs> yeah. And imagine uh, the military machinists, they must just be totally uptight because they got the machinist, <laughs> layer and then like a military training layer i can't imagine like what their made beds look like yeah, <laughs> so yeah. talk to us about thousandths of an inch because hopefully you're not thinking that when you're parking your trailer but what, what's that all about no um well what do you what do you i, I mean i just i hear like guys like my dad and phil like oh, it's within two or three thousandths and i'm yeah. thinking 
you don't have eagle eyes. What are you, how, what are you talking about? But I know that they all speak this way. So there's something there. So yeah. I can sometimes see like an eighth of an inch and that's a chunk, but will you just a thousandth of an inch? It's like, we're going from this, uh, imperial, you know, by twelves measurement all of a sudden to thousands. And I don't know, just maybe help just talk, both of you can maybe help me out with this, but just well, seems kind of unnecessary. I certainly, uh, I certainly don't feel qualified to try to explain it very well, um, but I'll but I'll try to do my best here. It, one way that I've always tried to teach myself to think, and this is going way back, is to take one inch. Right, you you, you can visualize what one inch is because you yes. read a tape measure. Uh, break that inch into uh, one thousand equal parts. Okay, that's what thousands of an inch is. So like you were just saying, one eighth of an inch, that would be 125 thousandths, uh, you know, the, because of the, uh, the fractional equivalent. Right. But um, so it's just taking an inch and breaking it into a thousand equal places. So and, how and so, could you think about so, five thousandths of an inch? That seems microscopic, but about, people can feel and talk about that as if it's, you know, a tangible thing they can put their hands on. Yeah, just you grab can feel it. your hairs. That's yeah. That's you, you you can feel it, right? I mean, yeah. you you can run your finger over a lip on a machine tool, and you can feel a five thousandths lip. Oh yeah, that's you that's can feel big that bump. You, that's a big ugly deviation. Yeah. Yeah. So get, I think, go ahead. Uh, I think Phil told me that uh, in a Bible, a sheet of paper in a Bible is like three thousandths or something like that. And yeah, you were okay. talking about a hair, a human hair is about five thousandths. Is that what we were talking I, about I, there? I think a hair is around three or four thousandths, maybe. Three or four thousandths, yeah. Uh, I've actually so, never measured one. <laughs> but, so, so, so there are some hip shot sort of ways to use common uh, items as as a way to understand these distances. Think of a set of feeler gauges. You can spread out a set of feeler gauges and see right down, you know, 10 thousandths, 20 thousandths, 15 thousandths, 12 thousandths, mm -hmm. and you can feel that. And it's, uh, th uh, so a 16th of an inch in Carpenter's work to a 16th of an inch is 60, round numbers, 60 yeah. thousandths, you know, okay. actually yeah. 62 and a half thousandths, right? Yeah. yeah. And okay. so, and that, so now, that once, means you're, once you're at a 16th of an inch, now you just can work, if you convert to the thousandths, you're, that that's the carpenter in me. When we yeah. start talking about that, I'm visualizing. Okay, so thirty second. I can kind of read a thirty second on a tape measure, right? And so we know that that's about thirty thousands round yeah. carpenter numbers, you know. Yeah. And so that's kind of how to visualize that for for a carpenter anyway. Right. Yeah, that's neat. Um, yeah. So about the trade itself, it's changed a lot over even your lifetime. I would guess with these, um, I'll say electronic, but you know what I mean, the non manual machines. CNC. So let's speak to a listener who might be interested in being in, you know, the industry at this point. Uh, what is that like for those fellows? I guess there's trade schools or does, does it make sense for them to learn manual machines? Like what, what you are an expert on, or do you advise kids just like get trained on the newest cutting edge tool or, or what's it like for workers in the industry these days? And especially younger fellows who might have an interest in this as a career. Well, I, I encourage Anybody that has the opportunity to learn both sides of the machining trade, if you can learn manual and CNC, definitely do that. Now, the way the future is going is that I would encourage anybody to definitely get in there and learn CNC because, uh, you know, all these guys that are running these CNC machines, they're, I feel like they're miles ahead of me. 
Okay. Mm-hmm. Being able to uh, do CAD and CAM uh, and program these machines and make these unbelievable parts in a fraction of the time of what you can on a mill or a lathe. That's mm-hmm. unbelievable. But I think there's also a need there for guys to understand the basics and learn how to set a workpiece up in a lathe or a manual mill, you know, set it in the, set it in a vice, how to uh, not just rely on a CNC machine and what they hear and what they're visualizing, but being able to run manual machines and these hand cranks and feel and listen to the machine and what it's doing. I think that they, I think once they do that and they have some experience running a manual machine, they have a little better understanding of what's going on with that cutter. Mm-hmm. You know, some of the, sometimes you might get a, a chatter or uh, a tool is breaking, you know, or you're feeling the machine jump around because something's wrong. Mm-hmm. I think having that, that hands-on experience actually will help them in their career. Even if I'll they're bet- just doing it to gain some of that experience with the manual stuff. So I would say that would be a vitally important thing if there were time for young engineers to have that experience, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. When, when you're designing things. I mean, like every automotive engineer, just he deserves to have to work in a production automotive shop for a while, right? Yeah. And it would be the same with the people that are designing, you know, um, mechanical components. If they could actually run a manual machine for a while, mm-hmm. they would have a better grasp. I've heard that a lot. It is uh, There's a lot of engineers that are designing components and they have no idea what it takes to machine it. Mm-hmm. So they're just designing something and they're putting all these crazy features in there that just adds to the complexity of how you're actually going to machine that. Mm-hmm. So, uh, yeah, I've heard that a lot is that, man, they should have been out there in a machine shop and just have the basic principles and understanding of what it takes to manufacture something on a machine. Mm-hmm. And then that will help them in their design, you know, in their engineering as well. Mm-hmm. Hey, maybe talk us through what you said. You started putting videos up in 2013. What was your mindset when you started doing that? I know, I know, you didn't probably have this in mind, but what what was going through your head? And and then talk about what your work is like now, because I know for us and for my dad in particular, um, it, making video content has changed the nature of of the job of the work completely. It's the same work, but it's kind of for a totally different reason. And and I'm wondering, and and I guess people may not realize how how you know it seems like making a video is just like a little thing but it, it takes over like the whole day kind of yeah. if you're going to film mm-hmm. it and i'm so anyways yeah. talk about what that's like because I, I doubt that's what you had in mind when you started posting videos <laughs> yeah when i when i started making videos it was just uh it was something fun and new to try and at that particular time for uh i don't know a couple years or so before that I was pretty active on the uh, practicalmachinist.com website. So I was contributing there, you know, and and that was back when a lot of people were just sharing pictures on the forums of what it was they were doing, you know, their jobs and Mm. uh, their projects and restorations. So I was on there pretty active sharing a lot of the jobs that I did and machining jobs, you know, real world jobs where I would, I'd be on the lathe and I'd take a few pictures of something, a shaft that I was building for a gearbox and share it on there. And so at that times when I think cameras were starting to be a little bit more affordable for everybody, you know, a lot of people were using their cell phones, but they had those GoPro cameras coming out. And Mm -hmm. so I decided to get a GoPro camera and instead of just taking a picture, I wanted to try to like show video of the, (laughs) of the machine work. And so it took me a little while. It, it, It was a good six months 
that I finally figured out how to uh, take a video and edit it and put it up on YouTube. You know, so mm. I what I wanted to do was be able to show a video of some of this machine work. And at the time that I started doing this, I didn't realize that this entire YouTube world and community was out there that wanted mm -hmm. to watch this stuff. Mm -hmm. I was making a couple of videos and I, and I had shared the link over on practical machinists thinking that, well, this is my audience. It's these forums that are going to be watching these videos. Mm -hmm. And so the guys from the forums quickly started subscribing to me. And then all of a sudden people from all walks of life and every country in the world started subscribing to me and watching yeah. these videos because yeah. apparently at the time, there was a lot of guys that started doing this kind of at the same time I did. It was just kind of coincidentally that everybody started doing it. Um, but there wasn't a whole lot of machining content out there at the, at the time that I started doing that. And so I started uploading a few videos and I, I started getting all these subscribers and, and all these comments coming through about how awesome everybody thought this stuff was. So I just continued to do it. I, I started to enjoy it more and more. So it, it became part of me, part of the job. It was like, okay, I got this job, but I want to share what it is I'm going to do, whether it be a, making a new part or we're going to repair a part. So I'd have mm -hmm. the camera. I'd made me up a little um, a, a indicator holder to hold my GoPro so I could just mount it anywhere in the shop on a Mac base. Mm -hmm. And I started recording everything and, and uh, it, it just kept, it just kept snowballing into into what it's grown into now. <laughs> That's a, so. Let me just say this: is is that um, it? I'm going to assume that it was for you, like it has, like it was for me. It was like jumping into a bathtub of cold water to realize how filming something compromises your ability to actually produce the work. Yeah, having to think yeah. about the filming and think about the work. These these two. These mm -hmm. two things are in conflict with each other, sort of. You know, the, yeah. the film complicates the work, and if you miss the work, you've, you've complicated the video you just took. And, and so it, it really, really changed that. Um, where was I going with that observation? I guess I was, just, I was just going with how have you dealt with the fact that the enjoyment – oh, I know what I was going to say. What I was going to say was I can't believe – I'm just so impressed by the idea of having to film and edit and upload and do all the work yourself that Nate does in our partnership because Nate works like a dog pretty much all the time. <laughs> and at different times, I'm working pretty much all the time, although lately I've had less pressure because of the point that the house is at. So this has to have been, at least for a while, a really overwhelming workload for you handling both ends of this. Yeah, it's it, and it's always been just me the the mm -hmm. entire ever since I started. I've I've always mm -hmm. I've always filmed and edited and uploaded every one of my videos. So yeah, it's, it's so cool. One, one man band when it comes to that. Huh. And sometimes I do kind of think back because there was there's been plenty of weeks where I would upload multiple videos in one week. You know, and I was working two full time jobs. Uh, you know, I had my <laughs> I had my daytime job where I was filming a lot of this work. And then I would come home to my shop, which is where, you know, I'm at full time now. And I would have projects going on out there. So I would have videos from both my day job and my personal shop that I would be uploading. And my days always, always had long days. I'd wake up uh, six o'clock. That's when my day started. And my, and my, it usually didn't end until 10 or 11 o'clock at night. Cause mm -hmm. I, I'd go to bed, but I would be up until then editing videos to put up that week. Yep. And, um, wow. 
And the only thing that's really kind of uh, been a little bit more relaxed about that schedule now is the fact that I don't have a a separate full-time job to go to anymore. Now I just work for myself. So now I can dedicate more time to being in my shop, doing what it is that I want to do and taking my time on these projects. I don't, I don't like to rush through jobs anymore. Yep. I like to be able to take my time and film them and share them on YouTube. So that's, mm-hmm. that's a big part of what it is I do in my shop now. So I, I've recognized that improvement too, that it has taken the time pressure off of what used to always be time driven. Yes. You know, that, that, that the, that the motive to capture it on film has forced us, me as, as the guy producing the work anyway, because Nate still has the burden of producing the videos. But for me, the, the time budget that every other job has always had all my life has been reduced. And that's, that's been a plus, right? Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I'm still taking in jobs from, from individuals and, uh, you know, mm-hmm. some from companies. I, I do a little work here and there. Um, I'm, I'm a lot more selective now mm-hmm. on what it is that I take in because mm-hmm. I, I get a lot of requests. I have a lot of people that, that, um, that want me to do some work, but, but it's just me. I can only do so much. And I, I don't want, I don't like that pressure of just having this uh, backlog of all these projects and jobs that everybody's wanting to do because, uh, and it's good to have that, especially if you're in a business and you're looking for that work. But uh, part of the YouTube is that I want to have time for myself and my own projects and my own machinery repairs and restorations as well. So I don't want it to be just, hundred percent jobs that's coming through the door. I, I want to have some time for myself and I can still go out there, still work on something, still film it, edit it for a video to share with everybody. And, and it keeps me busy. Yep. Do you have any, um, exciting kind of jobs in the pipeline that you're really excited to film and make videos about, or maybe even just personal project or restorations that are coming up? Well, the, the big job that I'm working on currently right now, is I've uh, been collaborating with uh, Keith Rucker over at uh, oh, yeah. Machinery. Yeah, he took in a um, what's called a Stoker engine, and he volunteered to uh, restore the Stoker engine. And uh, my apologies, I cannot remember uh, what organization that the Stoker engine is for. I know it goes up to Tennessee, one of the rail yards there. Wow! But the uh, the big engine case needs some machine work inside of it, and he actually went in there, uh, him and my buddy Lance went in there and did a little bit of welding in this machined area that was, uh, it was kind of, uh, just wore out from uh, water sitting in it, you know, over the years. And so I've got to get in there and actually machine these two channels out. That's been welded up. So that's currently what I've been working on, but I've had to machine a big fixture plate to be able to hold this engine case in my shaper because the, mm-hmm. the engine itself was too big to fit on the table. So I had to take a big piece of steel and machine it so that it would bolt onto the table. And then the engine case will sit on that table there. So that's, that's what's going on currently right now, what I've been working on. That's a great project. So you've mentioned twice now your shaper. And when I first started into blacksmithing now, about 12 years ago, I, my power hammer showed up without the dies. And so a mutual friend of Cy and mine, um, 
has several shapers. He's got a lot of old machine tools. And so he machined these dies out of some um, 4350, I think. And so I stood there for hours watching that, <laughs> watching that shaper shave away oh, really? and scatter all. Oh, man. It, it's just so cool. It's such a basic and intuitive. Well, I don't know if it's intuitive, but it's an elemental. It's, it was yeah. like one of the first machine tools, right? I mean. Yeah, it's a very early design. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and it was it's primitive, right? But boy, it does it the is. work. Yeah, it's uh, it's an obsolete machine, especially yeah. in today's today's day. But for me, because I I just love these old machines, you know, and that's yeah. what a lot of this us you guys like me captivate us is these old machines. Yeah, and and the shaper was something that I never had the privilege of running in my dad's shop. He had one, but. Uh, it was never hooked up at that point. He had disconnected it, pushed it to the back corner, never used it anymore. And we ended up scrapping it because we couldn't even sell the thing. Yeah. And so I always had wanted to run a shaper and the, and the more and more I got involved with these older machines, I just kept telling myself, I'm like, I really want a shaper. Yeah. And so I, I lucked out. I found a great shaper, a big, uh, G and E 32 inch uh -huh. stroke. That's a big one. Thousand pounds. Yeah. And, and I love, running that machine and just, you can take, you can remove a lot of material with, with those machines. Yeah. So a, a, a shaper that size has got a big vice on it. I've got a, a vice yeah. off a shaper on my drill press and it's just a beautiful solid. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's just such a great vice and I can imagine how big the one is on your shaper. Yeah. The, the, the jaw widths on it is, uh, I believe it's 15 inches wide. That's big. Yeah. So, so Nate, just so you'll know the shaper, it, it, it's, it has an intermittent cut. That is, the, it begins its swing in the air, and then it suddenly encounters the edge of the metal and just peels off a shaving as it just drives right across the top of the piece. And so that vice has to stand there and take it and mm -hmm. not shiver and not shake and not move. It's just amazing. Yeah, I'd yeah. love to meet the psychopath who invented that thing. <laughs> he would have been a Civil War guy, okay? Yeah, these people are insane. Like, I, I got an idea. <laughs> It's, um, it's still a great machine. You know, I get a lot of people that joke with me about, you know, you can't, you can't make anything uh, or you can make anything on a shaper except for money. Uh, <laughs> but I've actually, uh, I don't flaunt it, but I've proven that wrong because I've done quite a few jobs on there. And while sometimes, yeah, it, it may be something that is uh, much more suited for a different machine, such as a Miller machine. A lot of times I like to do things on the shaper for the pure fun and enjoyment yeah. of it. And I uh, share it with my audience, but there's been a few jobs that I've, that I've brought in that I've tried to share that actually my type of shaper, I've got a universal table, which actually, uh, it pivots and, and rotates yeah. so I can, oh. I can bolt a part down on there and get the uh, table indicated, you know, the, the surface that I'm trying to mm -hmm. cut, get it nice and parallel with the uh, stroke of the Ram and easily cut something versus trying to set something up in a miller machine table and get it trammed in nice and level. Mm -hmm. So there's good. plenty of times that shaper comes in as a, as a very handy machine to do something. So wow. we, we just uploaded a video about Ken Jordan and the video is the friend that revolu revolutionized my life. You would enjoy it. You, you ought to watch, see the craftsmanship he's done, but yeah. I helped him move the neatest little shaper into his shop. You ought to look at that and then we'll talk on the phone. It's, it's like in mint, mint showroom floor condition. It's not very big, but it's such a beautiful little thing. And it, is we got it, a little, is it like a, is it an Atlas? Or a, a uh, South Bend? It was green. It was green. It, it's with a light, light green, red, 
yellow uh, logo on it. You, you, you che- check out the video, man. In fact, we may Nate may throw a little B roll of that up into this video, perhaps yeah. because it's just. And I, I, I haul it in there on my tilt trailer and we tilted the trailer up and put some pipes under it and rolled it off and it just slipped into his shop like it was born there. You know, it's just, it's yeah. a beautiful little thing. Yeah. Do you feel like you've kind of, I don't want to say mastered, but you, you kind of learned the shaper with your big one that you got and do you feel like you've really got a handle on it? Because I'm guessing, did you have somebody come show you the ropes on it or is it kind of intuitive and since you know all the other machines? Yeah, already? I think it was an intuitive thing. You kind of understand what you, what, what you have to do. Uh, but I was self-taught on the shaper, you know, so I, I never had anybody like dad show me how to run a shaper. And the first time you start running a shaper, you're going to make some mistakes and you're going to learn what not to do again, because <laughs> you got to be careful that you don't crash it. You, you know, bet. You got this, uh, you know, you got this big ram that's just going back and forth. And so, you know, if you got a workpiece sticking up here in the way, you don't have it positioned right. This ram's going to come out and just hit it and crash, you know? So yeah. And something's going to break. Yeah. Something will certainly break when that happens, man. Yeah. And it's usually uh-huh. not the inside of the machine. It's something else. You know, you're going to yeah. screw something else up. There's going to be parts flying around on your shop floor and it'll be bad. Yeah. 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 So, um, wow, that's really cool. Well, you mentioned a few minutes ago that you're make you're doing all this work and you like to find time to do your own machining, but you're, you're making it sound like this is, is there anything you do besides machining and, and making videos? Do you have any other hobbies that you're <laughs> filling the, like the extra 30 minutes of the clock in with, or is this just all you need is your, your, uh, your shop? Well, there's a, there's, there's one other aspect of what it is I like to do too. And a lot of my audience knows this. I love to barbecue. I love oh, yeah. to do, I love to smoke and, uh, and barbecue. And, and so typically if I'm not in my shop working, I'm usually out on my patio, you know, with my grills or my smokers busy out mm. there cooking some dinner. That's, that's Man, the that other counts. thing that I really, really enjoy. Man, that's sweet. That's awesome. Yeah. Hey, so, this look, is, here's, here's an off-topic question about smokers, and this is definitely not any kind of ad, but do you use a Traeger out of curiosity, a smoker grill, you know no, those ones? I don't have any I don't have any of those types of uh, grills and smokers, the uh, okay. uh, electric style. Well, it's like, a wood pellet pellet. it's like a wood pellet one. Yeah. But so, somebody's telling me that like – Yeah, okay. Well, we'll have to learn more about it. But someone was like – explain it in a way i was a little skeptical about that it was it could do everything but nothing <laughs> it's can do extremely everything. popular in this day and age right? yeah. i'll tell you that because it's uh it's one of those uh, types of grills that they developed it's kind of like a no-brainer and you yeah. can cut it forget it so you put your food in there your meat whatever it is you're cooking <laughs> and you have a dial that you uh you you set the temperature that you want the thing to run at it's like an oven so it wow. runs at that temperature. I think you have another um, setting where you can set how much smoke you want to put into the wow. food. It just runs itself, and you come back when it's done. <laughs> so here's what here's what we're talking about, boys. Is a CNC barbecue, right? Yes. And we don't yeah. have time for a CNC barbecue. We are manual barbecuers, right? Okay. And that's what you do. You're a manual yeah. barbecue guy that's and a manual right. machinist. Yeah, I have a lot of people that you know. There's a lot awesome. of discussion out there like that, and and Scott, you you you'll understand this. I'm getting into uh, stick burning, which I have an offset smoker now. I'm using oh. just wood. Oh, yeah, yeah. So there's a bit of art and craftsmanship that goes into this that you have to learn and, and master also. because Species and of, moisture and stuff, yeah. Yeah, a fire management. You know, yeah. fire management, heat management, smoke management. And, and that's, that's part of what it is that I love to learn about right now. 
and I'm and I'm, I read books about it. I go out uh-huh. there every week. I'm out there multiple times a day out there, uh, not with just with the big smoker, but my, with my grills as well. That's so awesome. You, you can kind of tell I have a little passion for it. <laughs> yes, you do. Hey, are you making so, any videos about it yet? Oh yeah, I've made a lot of videos. It's it's uh, all of my cooking my cooking videos goes over on my second channel, which is a bomb adventures. Okay. Okay. So anything that's uh, travel related or cooking related goes on to that second channel. So if nice. anybody's interested, they go check it out. I, um, I'm always thinking up of another cooking video that I want to share. Oh, that's cool. Well, okay, so the audience knows and you get it, but they probably figured out that, I don't actually watch near as much YouTube as I used to. I, I don't. I don't really keep up on all your videos. You you haven't either. It's kind of an unfortunate byproduct of like making a lot of content. Yeah. Unfortunately, there's I a I lot of good to... stuff to watch out there, and yeah. a lot of us creators really just don't yeah. have a lot of time to watch yeah. everybody's videos. You know? you know, it's it's a classic thing. If you take what you love and turn it into a job, you have to find something else to love, right? Yeah. I mean, there's no time. There yep. is no time. So so I, I want to steer this back around for a second and and show the people who are watching this, oh, this little the beauty. The okay, see that? Okay, now, I don't know if we're going to be able to focus on this, but, I mean, this looks solid, right? I mean, if you if you were looking at this, if you were holding this and looking at this vice handle, you would think, well, that's one piece. It is seamless, right? Right. Except watch this. It actually threads apart. Can you see how that goes away? Look That's that. an invisible line, Adam. I don't know how you did that. That's a net zero <laughs> well, fit. Now, now tell, now be honest and tell them what you were doing at like five thirty this morning. Okay, and, on, and actually honesty, tell the real story here. Okay, man, honesty is an overrated <laughs> virtue. Okay, I'm not sure. <laughs> Here's what happened. I lost this darn thing, Adam. It disappeared into my shop for like oh, a no. year. We were we were going to restore that vice a year ago, yeah. and I said, "Well, let me grab the handle," and it was gone. So oh. I woke up, I woke up at four o'clock this morning and at four 30, I was out of bed and got dressed, went out to the shop and started tearing the world apart. And it wasn't <laughs> found until my wife came out, Kelly came out and helped me tear the world apart. She said, and so what do I get for finding something like this? And she holds up this thing wrapped in the red rag that I wrapped it in to protect it. So <laughs> yeah. this was found today, but, but I want to go back to bragging about this. And we were talking about feeling two or three thousandths. There is not a two or three thousandths deviation in this except for the inclusion that you had to leave because the rough forging I provided you was a little too small right here. Yep. So there's just there's just a little bit of the scale, of the forging scale right there, which I love. I love that, you know? It gives a little character. It does. It And so it, it, that was forged out of a coil spring, which was hopefully 5160. And I tried to anneal it. Was this thing hard or soft when you tangled with it? When you got through the scale, do you remember? I, I don't remember it being, it, it wasn't hard to the point where I could not machine it. I was okay. able to machine it like a uh, normal steel. So okay. I would imagine that it's got a lot of strength to it, but it's yeah. not hardened steel. Right. Okay. And I'm not going to harden it. I mean, it doesn't have to be hard in that vice, right? I thought about bringing it up to critical and quenching it. And I thought, no, I'm not going to mess that thing up. No, I mean, as long as you use that vice in the future, the way it was designed to use, you know, just use a hand to tighten something mm-hmm. up. Don't put a sweet on it. The only yeah. reason vice handles ever been is because people put cheater pipes on them or they hit yeah. them with hammers. Yeah. Yep. So that, a, a, a couple other questions. I don't know. I don't know if we talked about this. I, I thought about drilling that maybe putting a roll pin or a rivet or something in there to lock that on, but I just don't want to do that. I think I'm just going to put a little Loctite on there and just run it down and just use it, right? There you go. Just put some Loctite on it and yeah. uh, just wring it together as tight as you can. 
and it yeah. should be fine. It should never, never come apart. It's really and, beautiful. Well, <laughs> for the, for the people listening while they're driving, um, Adam made us a handle for a vice a, a couple years ago that we're going to restore. And I will we now bike. have, we now have all of the parts and pieces back in our possession. So we're going to, I'm leaving it in the office. I'm leaving it <laughs> yeah, in the office until we film that thing. There you go. There you so go. How often do you, you get to machine? your wife a steak dinner, by the way. <laughs> yes, I do. Yeah. Um, so how often do you machine off of a rough forging like that? Uh, it's pretty rare that I okay. that I have to machine anything like that. I've, I've machined a lot of castings, you know. I see. Uh, mm -hmm. But that's cast iron. But right. forgings, I... That, you know, I really can't even think of, of machining a forging before. That okay. could have been my first time. Okay. Did you go buy, Did you have to go out and buy that quarter round cutter, or did you happen to have that in stock? It it, it was a was it quarter oh. round the cu the cutter that that machined that right there. Oh yeah, corner rounding end mill. That was something yeah. I already had in my shop. Oh good. I thought. Oh, I hope he didn't have to go buy that just for that vice handle. No, thankfully, uh, because of dad and granddad, I've, I had a pretty pretty well stocked uh, machine shop with cutters. So because because mm. that cutter would cost how much? That cutter would cost a hundred bucks. What would that cost uh, probably easy, a hundred dollars. Yeah, hundred, hundred fifty bucks. Yeah, it was yeah. a beautiful tool. Did a nice job. Um, well, to kind of wrap it up, Adam, machining seems like the type of craft or trade that is really difficult to just like you know ease into because you're you get these huge machines. So for someone who's interested or kind of wants to, how does somebody like dip their toe into the water or practice or experiment? You know, maybe someone who's retired with this is are there places or ways to kind of get involved where you pretty much just had to buy a machine and dive in and if so what machine so can you talk about that a little bit how would Good somebody question. get involved with this if they wanted to well there's a there because of the audience that i have i've learned that so many people have actually uh, been interested in machining so much now that they would go out and they would acquire their own machine so they would they would find a used lathe and a used mill and it doesn't have to be big, giant, heavy machines either. Some people start off with like a little bench top lathe, bench top mill, and uh, and start learning that way. Not only the machines, you have to. There's a lot of tools that that are involved as well. That's why if you look around my shop, you see toolboxes everywhere. Yep. So you got to have some kind of basic measuring tools, you know, such as rulers, calipers, micrometers, and uh, you know, a couple dial indicators so that you can uh, get things dialed into the machine. But if, if people are interested in it, they can certainly do that. You know, they can buy them a, a couple pieces of machinery to put in their garage or their home home shop and, and start that way. And they don't but, cost much. Those little bench tops don't cost a lot of money, right? No, I mean, you can you can find little bench top mills for use for probably around 500 bucks, uh, you know, and, and up. And of course, you, you can buy that stuff new from uh, places like, you know, Grizzly now, if you, if you want some kind of like new machine, there's different yeah. levels of quality out there as well. And uh, generally what people find is that when they start out with one of those kind of machines, they very quickly want to graduate <laughs> up to the next size machine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> of their limited capacity and being able to, mm -hmm. you know, make a big heavy chip on them. Um, mm. So people can do that, but if there's any, Anybody out there that's interested in the trades, I would definitely encourage them to check with their local uh, technical schools, mm -hmm. uh, technical colleges, because there's usually manufacturing courses out there that they can take. Just like right here in town, uh, we have the college here and they have a uh, manufacturing course there that's uh, it's all CNC, 
there's no manual machines in there, but they actually teach you how to uh, do CAD and CAM and mm-hmm. uh, make parts. They even have a wood shop. They, they teach them woodworking in there as well, which is pretty mm-hmm. cool. There's a wow. lot of schools that still offer that, and um, people can go and get the basic training and knowledge that they need there at these schools, and then they can get their foot into the door at a machine shop, you know, and you, you got to work the ranks. There's a there's a guy on Craigslist in our area who refreshes an ad that's basically, I have a machine shop in my garage, and if anybody wants to come hang out, let me know. Yeah. And it, it made me instantly think about what we... Or I, I thought when I saw his ad about your audience and the machinist audience, how for some reason in general, these types of fellas are friendly and yeah, like, I don't know, sharing with their information and their tools. And dad, you have a collection of machinists around here who yeah. are the same thing. It's just all this expertise. Probably somebody has the machine and would love to kind of show it to you. So maybe the answer is if, if you really want to get involved, it, it probably wouldn't be too hard to find you know people and just if you start looking you'll find people yeah you know that you brought that up it's pretty easy to connect and i I never even thought about that you know somebody on craigslist trying to find other people but the uh the 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 crowd for machining and metalworking is generally kind of small it's not something that you hear a lot in random conversations you know right yeah everybody does it yeah so uh yeah i think these people that are that are interested in this, they're definitely trying to find other like-minded yeah. individuals that they can kind of share their passions with. That's a yeah. pretty so, interesting way. So what yeah. I would do if I was moving into a, a new town and I would w- wanting to get established, I would start asking around who would, who sells machine tools, who sells lathes, who sells yeah. old mills. And somebody around there is kind of dealing that it might be in the next town or two or three towns over, but you could find Around here, it's an outfit called HPS, and they've got two or three warehouses full of old tools that they buy at auction and resell. And as soon as you find them, you're going to find the crowd of guys that are always going through there all week, picking up their tooling and stuff that they need. And you're going to be connected with the the guys that are doing that. If you can find whoever's selling the tools, you'll find where the guys go to buy the tools, and then you're connected. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. That's really great. Well, Adam, can't thank you enough for coming on our show. And we will put links to your channel, to your second channel, um, in the description of this video and you'll be, or our audience will be hearing more about you now that we have our vice handle back in hand and we can Hooray. Kind of finish what we started here because that is really the cherry on top of what will be, uh, well, it'll be a great little restoration project for our, for our channel and for our shop itself. So, uh, I was any, gonna anything- ask you that is that in the works, uh, this winter is you going to do that restoration on the vice? Yeah, it's it's uh we don't, we're all out of excuses. So <laughs> yeah, for sure. Are you are you guys um are you at a stopping point on the on the uh, the house build? No, no. Um, where we are at is at a point where we can slow down. We've okay. got sub we've got subcontractors in there. We're just about ready to call for most of the mechanical inspections. I was over there this morning setting up some sidewalk forms. You know, the outside flat work and hardscapings going on, and so at at this point. I don't know, Nate and I haven't really talked about it, but I'm thinking we're going to be approaching substantial completion by May, right? Oh, really? You know, wow. Yeah, maybe June. We're in no hurry. It's the first job in my life that does not have a time crunch. And I'm That's frankly, awesome. I'm just enjoying that. It and feels it makes, great, doesn't it? It feels great. And it makes it easier to collect the good video and gives Nate a little more slack on, 
you know, what we sequence in the queue of videos that's going out. And so it, it yeah. does feel great. Yeah. Well, you something understand. has to give like with, with the job, like you can't do a great job and make great videos and have it done by Christmas. Like something that's has right. to give. And so that's for right. us, we're just fortunate that we can let the timing push. And so, yeah, that would be great. And it's very likely it'll be done in the spring, but if it's after that, that's oh, okay well. too. And, and, and frankly, like with this vice, um, I don't know. I would kind of rather film a vice restoration than than the house at the moment. I've It'll give you a break. Filming. Uh. Yeah, I'm kind of tired of filming the house at the moment, and <laughs> hey, so man. a little vice restoration, I would get more. I I, I would. It, it will be. Uh, it'll be nice to do that and take a little break and and you know just. So so check this, out. You're one of the few guys on the planet that can appreciate this. So last <laughs> summer, when when you know we. When we started with the foundation on the house and then framed it, in Oregon, the rains start like in October usually. And so we had a small crew and Nate got pushed into the miserable position of having to film all day. He ended up with like seven hard drives full of footage that then once the crunch was over and we had the roof on and the rains came and we could stop, there was no time for him to even do any editing on seven hard drives worth of footage. He then had to get into the, in front of his computer in at Thanksgiving a year ago. Thanksgiving, he had to go back and try to tear and try to revisit what had happened six months ago and make videos out of something that was long buried and go through all that mountain of footage to get it. It was it was hard. I get it. I understand it. I I, I have that myself. Maybe not on that level, but when I film a long project. And I'm out there every day filming and I yeah. come in here and I download them into my computer there. I have to go back and rewatch all that stuff that I did. And that's, uh, yeah. I understand it. That's where the, a lot of the time comes in. So yeah. you, uh, you do the job, you film it, and then you have to watch the job again and, and then try <laughs> exactly. to put it together, you know, and edit out all that extra stuff and, and try yeah. to keep the, the video in a certain amount of time that, you know, your viewers are going to be interested in watching it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's it. it. Um, yeah. I was going to ask you guys a question too. So you got the spec house that you're, that you're building. Do you have anything on the horizon after that? Do you have another house that you might do, or do you have any other kind of big project in mind, or maybe you don't want to say right now? Well, we have, a, we have a couple things, but no house on the horizon. The house was okay. almost impossibly hard for all of us for a lot of reasons. Okay. But we have some, we have a lot of the other type of content that's part of my life, right? So I don't know, you've probably not seen on the channel. I, my dad had a 1942 D2 Caterpillar crawler. Okay. okay. It's, it's an old campaigner and it's in really great shape, but it's just the crawler, no blade, no canopy, no winch. And around here in the Pacific Northwest, you've got to have a blade, a canopy and a winch to do any logging or you get killed and you can't get the logs and you can't push. So I've scrounged around and I found Caterpillar factory blade, winch, and canopy that I'm going to be installing on that 1942 D2 and turn okay. it into a baby logger. Okay, so that, that'll, that'll take a while. Um, we have tool restorations and reviews, and I'm going to start a tree house. We've got a great big weeping willow tree here, and I have grandkids that would just really like a tree house. So we're going to do some of that. And then there's just all the blacksmithing stuff that's been getting pushed back that we need to jump on you know, all those, all those things that have to will come back to life. So we'll have a shift in the content for a while and then see if something else in construction presents itself. I yeah. want to do some videos that are, I've got some ideas like 
like factory type tours. Yes. I mean, not factory, but big, bigger type of industrial shop, like a big machine shop, frankly. Like I would, I would love to drag a camera and my dad through one of those and, and get a look at, at something like that and, and, and make some content showing different types of, uh, job sites and factories and, Yep. You know, there's a, um, I've said this several times, but there's a boat factory here. They make fishing boats and there's a, yep. all kinds of stuff like that. I, in fact, I watched, um, a video a couple nights ago about the factory where Tabasco was made and yeah, that's, 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 that's a totally different thing, but it was, I would just was, it was so fun to watch that. And it made me want to, it made me look forward to like someday, maybe trying to make some content like that, you know, obviously it'd be closer to the type of, um, yeah. work that, that my dad does. So whether it's a, Wood products. Um, we have lots of yeah. wood products manufacturing around here, and yeah, something like that. Uh, so I, I don't know. I I don't think we'll do another house, um, but we're we'll we'll try some other type of new, either video project or I don't know what. We're, we'll 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 keep doing something. I, and and really, I've got a lot to continue to learn about blacksmithing, and there's a lot of blacksmithing projects that I've been wanting to do for a long, long time. And so there's going to be there's sort of an unlimited number of things you can do when you've got a few blacksmith tools, I probably am going to add a, a small milling machine, you know, because there are things that I could do with a milling machine and Damascus steel that yeah. would be really handy. And so we'll see about all that. I, I had an idea on a, uh, on a blacksmith forging project, not, not something that I necessarily am going to do for myself, but like I bought a, uh, just a cheap, um, like a log handler for handling fires, uh, firewood. Yeah, it's just, it's just big. T- it's like tongs, you know, but they're yeah. they're like three or four foot long, and they're super cheap, you know, because they're made over in China out of you know thin tube steel. Mm-hmm. I think something like that would be really cool to yep. you know see made. You know, these yep. big tongs that you grab hot pieces of wood with. Oh, know, I see. Yeah, 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 yeah. A- as part of a fireplace tool set or something. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I Absolutely. Just, I just think something like that would be pretty cool as a, just as a project for hey. you know, anybody out there. Cause that, I was like, mm-hmm. man, this thing is so cheap. You know, it's like, I know a blacksmith <laughs> yeah. could make one of these things. It probably weigh, you know, 10 times as much as it weighs. But it would be really cool. <laughs> You're big yeah. enough to handle it, man. You can do it. Oh yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> it sounds like somebody... you have a lot of great ideas and a lot of good stuff in, in store for your uh, channel there as well. A lot of, a lot of good projects. It sounds really interesting. And I, I like the, uh, factory tour idea myself. And I don't know if y'all ever caught any of them. I've got a couple out there on my channel where I did some factory tours. Yeah. Uh, Gerstner was one that I really enjoyed. I got to go up there and, and, uh, you know, meet and visit with all the guys at the Gerstner that build the wooden tool chest. Oh, I, I'd love to watch that. I'll, I'll go find that. That sounds great. Yeah. That was, that was, uh, amazing seeing their process in, uh, making yeah. these, uh, wooden tool chests that began back in the early 1900s, you know? Wow. Wow. That's neat. You know, another example, do you remember that guy we met in Arizona, dad, his, his dad or his grandpa built a machine that makes wooden concrete stakes. And yes. They, they still, yeah. Wooden stakes. It, yeah. This really neat little family business. They make wooden concrete stakes and they, they built the, the machine, the machinist outfit who built the machine, you know, still maintains it and. It's just neat. And I, I know yeah. some, to some extent, some of these things are proprietary and people may not want to, but, but still it, there's, there's some pretty neat one-off machines and factories and oh, assembly yeah. lines and, yeah. and tradesmen who are doing trades that they get, nobody even knows about that are yeah. probably yep, really exactly. highly skilled. And I would, yeah. 
love to find a way to, you know, give them a little more get, uh, get, shine some light on those guys. Yeah, you know, something, that would something be really like good. that. Adam, one factory tour that I got a big taste of, and then Nate and I are going to go back up and follow up on. It's just one of the coolest things. Um, so I carry a Leatherman multi-tool, right? I love Leatherman, and I have for a long time. Yeah. Well, they invited us up to do a factory tour, and their factory is just up in Portland, and it is the most amazing space-age thing I've ever seen. A Leatherman, the new Leathermans have two thousandth clearances in between the blades in those little bitty things and they're spitting them out of there i don't remember the number and i don't want to throw it out now because nate and i are going to do this again and nate's going to produce a beautiful video of their space age incredible facility and get this we're going to try i'm going to go up there with some little damascus steel billets that i'm going to make out of cable like cable off of one of the cats that dad and i used to log with i'm going to make some damascus cable uh, uh, cable Damascus and take it up there and they're going to machine a couple of blades for a Leatherman out of the billet that I bring and I'm going to get a chance to put that together right there in the middle of their factory so we're getting excited that about that. Cool. That yeah. is that is way cool. Hopefully you can get that organized and get that set up because I'll definitely like to see that. Yeah. yeah. And I know your viewers that that would be really cool. Get to see how they make their or what their factory looks like and how they make their parts. Yeah. That would I'll be tell good. you what. Yeah. I tell you what, if if you spilled your fried egg on the floor, and if it landed with the ketchup up, you could go ahead and eat it right off the floor, man. It is oh, so yeah. clean. You can't even imagine how clean that place is. That's amazing. Very yeah. cool. Yeah. Well, hopefully yeah. you guys can get that set up. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Well, um, thanks for coming on our show, Adam, and talking to us. We'll put links in the description for all the uh, listeners below. We'll put links to the video you did of the vice handle. Um for us, I think I, I thought that was a, just a great showcase of a lathe in general. You know, it's, yeah. it was just a great lathe project, and we talked a lot about lathes. And so, unless you got a better idea for a, a, a lathe video, I'll, I'll probably put that one up. And um, that's a great one right there. Share share that one. That will check that this, yeah. a project to work with you guys on. Check this out, boys. As we go out the door, just look how beautifully that thing threads out until <laughs> finally. Man, it's a long-winded thing. You got that in right to the end oh, yeah. of that ball, man. I mean, yep. it's just it's just beautiful. Thanks, Adam. Yeah. All right, no we'll problem, catch you man. next time. All right. Thanks for having me on, man. It's been great talking to you both, and I've really enjoyed this. So thank you very much. Come to Oregon. We're gonna come to Oregon. I promise you, we're gonna get to come up there and visit you guys. Right on. <laughs>